morning. Morning. Boy, have I missed you guys. We missed you. Yeah, I've been, uh, I guess you all know I've been out of town five out of six weeks. And I'm back now for a while. And I won't be gone too many weekends in a row from now on, but probably one weekend a month. Um, but had some had some really good things happen. I spoke at the American Association of Christian Counselors in Dallas, and that was extremely well received. Uh, extremely well received. It's just a tremendous response. So much so that they've invited me to uh, speak at their World Conference in Nashville next year, um, which I'm very excited about. And um, and then I, I was uh, fortunate enough to meet uh, some acquisition editors for several major Christian publishing houses that are interested in in some. Some material of mine pursuing uh, some some new book ideas. So we're we're excited about those opportunities too. And we just keep praying that the Lord will open up opportunities for this perspective and message to to reach uh, outside of this organization to a larger field of opportunity. So let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, beautiful sunny day today. It's bright and and fresh. We, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us today as we study your word, that our minds will be enlightened. May your angels join us in our worship of you. May our hearts be renewed in love for you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number eight in our quarterly, Atonement and the Cross of Christ. And the lesson title is Born of a Woman, Atonement and the Incarnation. If someone would read the memory verse for us there, 1 John 3, 5. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Thoughts about the memory verse. It's a powerful memory verse. It's used in many, many uh, contexts. But take away, take away our sins. What, what do you think about the, the idea there being expressed? Take away sin from where? You see, we read this. It says, but you know he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Where does he take our sins away from? Where did the sins go when he takes them away? Are these not reasonable questions to ask? Well, it's a change in our character because by beholding him, we want to become changed. And so, actually, he changes our behavior, which causes us to change our priorities and what we do. Okay, that cha- I'm with you. I like what you're saying. Um, how does that take away sins, our sins, the sins we've committed? How does changing our character take away the, the sins that we've committed? Those are the result. The sins are the result of a heart condition. Jesus made that clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Yes. So he, takes, he takes the sinful condition and uh-huh. it. Okay. Therefore, the symptoms resolve. So, the, so then what you're saying, the question I had is, did Jesus come to take away our acts of sin, or did he come to take away our sinfulness? So when, when you reread the text, do you read it as, um, he appeared that he might take away our sinfulness, and in him is no sin. Does that, is that, what do you think about that? Or do you like the idea of taking away sins, the acts of sin? Well, if it's the acts, I'm going to tell you, the majority of Christian folk see this as acts of sin. And so we should think that process through. We should be able to reason that process out. If it's acts of sin, how can he do that? How can he take away acts? Does, does history get erased when he does that? Think, think this through with me. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and she got pregnant, and then he murdered Uriah, did David afterward repent? 
Did he experience God's grace and forgiveness and restoration? Could we say that Jesus had taken away his sins? Would this text apply to David after his repentance? Yes. Um, Does that mean that Bathsheba was no longer pregnant and Uriah had had returned from the dead? No. Consequence is still there. Hmm. So even after David repented and experienced forgiveness and reconciliation with God, the, the, as you said, the result of his sins still remained. So where was sin taken away from? His heart and his mind. His, heart, his thought patterns. His heart and his mind. His thought patterns. Oh, interesting. Uh, some people would say, wait, they were taken away from the record books. So that when you open the books of heaven and you look in the record books, now when, when you pull up uh, David, son of Jesse, uh, king of Israel, you don't find a record of Adultery and murder, it's gone. It's been taken away from the books. Oh, Oh, it's still in the record book, he says. Okay. Good point. Good point. Um, Have you heard that idea, though? It's taken, he came to take away the record books, which means he's erasing history. With his blood. With his blood. Blotted out. Blotted out, yes. So what we see is blood stains in the book rather than records of sin. Does anybody have any difficulty with that idea? And I'm not trying to be funny here. I'm trying to really ask questions because this is what's commonly taught. Did any of you get taught that growing up? Yeah. Absolutely. Did you ever ask a question? Did it ever go, something's weird about that? Always. Yeah. First John 1, this is if we confess our sins, the acts. Mm-hmm. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Mm-hmm. Is that different than the sinful condition that we are talking about? Because it seems like these are the sinful acts here in First John. That's how it can be read. Can it also be read if we confess our sinfulness, our sinful state? If we confess that we're sinners, if we confess that we're wretched, if we're poor, we're blind, we're naked, we're, we're decrepit, if we confess it to him that we are, we are sick, we're dying, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all of our sinfulness, can it be read that way as well? Because the Greek, can, the Greek word sins can be sins or sinful, or sinfulness. So, can you read it that way? Will, will we, in other words, if we acknowledge that we're sick and terminal and dying and we're helpless, he'll be, and, and we seek him as our Savior, he'll be glad to heal us. He'll heal us from all of our unrighteousness. Can we be healed from our unrighteousness, our sinfulness, if, we're, if we refuse to acknowledge that we're sinful to start with. No. no. Hey, there's nothing wrong with me. Hey, it was that woman you gave me. I'm fine. She's the problem, not me. Is Adam going to be able to be healed as long as he maintains the position that there's nothing wrong with him? No. You don't seek it. So is there a difference between... Now, does that mean when we commit an act of sin that there isn't a process of repentance and restoration from an act? No, of course there's that process. But as Jesus said in Matthew 5, you say if you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart. He's pointing out the issue is the acts are a consequence of a heart that's sick. And the whole plan of salvation, think of all the metaphors. Let's see how many we can think of. We must be reborn. We must be recreated in the inner man. We must have a new heart and a right spirit, as Psalm 51. We must have the law written on the heart and mind. We must have the heart, circumcision of the heart. The heart of stone removed, the heart of flesh put in. How many other metaphors can we think of? 
that are in the scripture. Trespasses and sins. Dead in trespasses and sins. And, and then you have new life in Ephesians 2 and Galatians 2 and Philippians 2. So, so do we see a theme that the scripture is teaching a restoration, regenerative, recreative, healing process? They're not healed. Isn't that what the scripture is teaching? Yeah. Yeah, I think this might come out more as we go along. Getting back to your the David example, um, to experience restoration from his act of sin, he had he married Bathsheba. That was that was the reconciliation. Instead of leaving her a single mother, he married her. Does everybody understand what what happened there? A lot of people get confused. When we repent, we're supposed to turn away from our sin, right? <laughs> Aren't we supposed to? Isn't that what repent is turning away? Like, you're a cocaine addict, you have to give up cocaine, right? Did David give up Bathsheba? No. Well, how, how was that then? If he repented, shouldn't he have turned away? She's a human being, not cocaine. Okay. In that... But did he lust after her? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So does he turn away from his lust if he takes her? What was the deal? Well, repentance is more than just an internal change of heart, is it not? It is, as far as possible, restoring what one's taken. If you've taken $100 from your neighbor and you're truly sorry and you repent, do you keep the $100 or do you give it back? Give it back. Isn't that true? Yeah. Okay. Well, after David had done what he had done and he truly repented, how could he give back Uriah? Couldn't. Yeah. He couldn't. He couldn't resurrect Uriah from dead. And in that society, what did he ta- had taken from her? He took her name. He took her dignity. He took her stature in society. He took her home. He took her property. Because women couldn't have any of that stuff. She was homeless, street person, with a woman of ill repute. He took all this from her. No, he couldn't give Uriah back, but he could give her station, place, name, dignity, all that by marrying her. And when she became his wife, then she had all that restored to her. And so it wasn't a matter of continuing a lustful relationship. It was a matter of restoring what he had taken in a genuinely repentant heart. So Christ came to take sin or sinfulness out of our hearts, our minds, our characters. Christ came to remove the evil as well as the guilt, shame, fear, selfishness from our hearts and minds to cure us and the race so that we are in full harmony with God again. So in the, the first paragraph there, Somebody read that for us. Scientists concede. Scientists concede that no matter how much they are learning, the universe remains full of mystery. The Bible, too, is full of mystery, the greatest one being God's work for our salvation. This week, we will concentrate on a central theme of that work, the incarnation of the Son of God, possibly the greatest mystery in all the cosmos. That the Creator condescended to become a creature in a world of sin and death boggles the mind. How did that amazing event occur? Only the Godhead knows. One thing we do know, however, is that without the Incarnation, there would not be forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. The Incarnation of the Son of God into human flesh was an indispensable element in God's plan for the salvation of the race. Any thoughts, questions? Last sentence, absolutely true. Yes. Without the incarnation of Christ, it's, a, it's an indispensable element. We could not be saved without what Christ came to do and accomplish. It would be clear on that. It's a starting point. However, 
The one before it has some issues. Yeah. yeah, the one before it, I wanted to ask you about. Is it true, let's, let's, let's break it down, that without the incarnation of Christ, his death, his resurrection, the whole thing that he did, that we could not be reconciled to God? Yes. Everybody in harmony, everybody agree with that? That we couldn't experience reconciliation, restoration, and our full unity with God without Christ's completed mission? Yes. Yes, that's absolutely true. What about then the idea that without Christ's completed mission, we couldn't experience forgiveness, or we couldn't be forgiven? I think God could forgive us, but I don't know that we'd be able to understand the process of forgiveness and be able to like rec- feel it in our. Family. So I need to rephrase that and be very clear: that God couldn't forgive us. Oh, okay. Yeah. What about that? That's not true. That happened at the foundations of the world. Yeah. So it, it, it goes to what we understand forgiveness to mean. Some people hear the word forgiveness in this context, and they hear it as restoration, reconciliation, the whole thing. When you're forgiven, everything's restored, we're reconciled to God. That's how they hear it. If that's the case, if, if it's synonymous to reconciliation, then it, we're, we're good, we can't, be, we can't be forgiven if that's what forgiven means without Christ's accomplished mission. But most of us don't think about forgiveness that way. At least not in, in today's society. We think about forgiveness as being extended from the person who's been offended. Isn't that true? And repentance comes from the offender. And when forgiveness and repentance occur, then there's reconciliation. Isn't that how we think of it? So let me ask you the question. Was God restricted, prevented, incapable, somehow obstructed in his ability to forgive mankind without Christ's mission completed here on this earth? No. Okay, we've heard some no's. Any, anybody have questions with that? I see some questioning looks. Forgiveness is part of his character. So God forgave and then Christ came to complete what the Godhead had decided to do which was heal and reconcile mankind back to them. Or God remained angry and upset at man and Christ came in order to provide God uh, what he needed so that he could be forgiven. Which way do you like it better? Do you know what most of Christianity sees, or much of Christianity sees, that Christ died in order to somehow enable or clear the way or remove obstructions so that God would be able to forgive us? That he couldn't, he was, he was prevented from forgiving us without the death of Christ. You know, much of Christianity sees that. Do you see a problem with that? What, if you hold that view, what is the problem with holding that view? What does that view do to you? Makes you scared of God. And if you're afraid of God, will you trust Him? Will you open the heart? Well, then you can't be healed, you can't be restored because you're afraid of Him. Yes, exactly what it does. There's no question about it. All right, Sunday's lesson. Somebody read the paragraph, second paragraph, The Coming of Jesus. The coming of Jesus into humanity is precisely about the union of the divine and the human. Although the two natures remain distinct, what took place was not simply the indwelling of the divine and the human, but a real incarnation. That is, Christ is truly God and truly man. The Bible does not tell us what took place at the moment the two natures were united in the womb of Mary. The incarnation, God became human, and the fullness of God dwelt in humanity. This is precisely what Paul says. Thoughts? Questions? Have you ever contemplated this whole thing of incarnation? Have you heard debates about the incarnation? 
like, wow, I'm, I've been gone too long. You guys are way too quiet. <laughs> okay. Um, how do you understand the nature that Christ took upon himself? And what views have you heard on the topic? Do you know what I mean by nature? Did he take a humanity, uh, did he become human like Adam was before Adam's fall? Did he become human like Adam was after Adam's fall? Or somehow even different than those two? Adam before is what I've heard. Have you heard that question? And what difference does it make? Does it make a difference? Yeah. Well, There is a theory out there that he was born holy. Yes, actually the largest Christian group in the world yes. believes that Mary was sinless. Right, and her mother as well. Uh, because sin could not, you know, because Christ could not exist in a sinful womb. And so he, Christ himself was, was uh, like Adam, perfect uh, in his humanity before the fall. And of course Christ was without sin, there's no question about that. But they, they make this idea that, that Mary was also sinless. Do we believe that Mary was sinless? No. No. In fact, Galatians 4.4 tells us Christ was born of a woman under law. Under law? What law was he talking about? I believe that's the law of sin and death. He was born under the law of sin and death that Paul talks about. Well, think about how Adam came into the world. How did Adam come into the world? It's not a trick question. How did Adam come into the world? Dust. Turned into a man, breathed into his nostrils, breath of life. We have a sinless, perfect being directly from God, and Eve taken from his side. Did Christ come into the world as a human being that way? No. no. How did you and I come into the world? Sinful. Sinful mother and? Did Christ come into the world that way? No. Notice, he didn't come into the world like Adam did, and he didn't come into the world like you and me. He came into the world with a sinful mother, but his father was God. He's unique. One of a kind, a unique being. Now, why is this important? What was Christ coming to do? Reconcile us to God. Reconcile us to God. What was needed to reconcile us to God? He had to depend on God totally in order not to sin. He had to depend on God. That's that's how he did it. But what was needed? What was it that, why were we out of heart? What was causing our disunity with God? We didn't understand his character. Okay, that's part of it, which caused what happened? Did it trust, fear, selfishness, and changed us? So, in other words, I'm asking the question: Was the separation in our relation with God due to a change in God when man sinned that he's now angry, he's wrathful, he must be appeased, or was it a change in the nature of man that man is out of harmony with a loving God? Do you understand? Much of Christianity teaches the former. That when man sinned, God's holy character was offended. God is now angry. God is now wrathful. And appeasement must be made. Propitiation, expiation. The Son of God must die in order to assuage his Father to bring us back into unity. In other words, the Father is being reconciled to man. I see it differently. I see that mankind, at sin was changed in its base nature. The human race was changed in its nature from a nature of other-centered love to self-centeredness. And Christ came to put humanity back into perfect unity with God. To actually fix the brokenness, to heal the damage. Plan of salvation. Greek is sozo, it means to heal. In the English, we get root words like salvo and sav, like I salve, it means to heal. He came to heal, to fix the problem. How could he do that? Well, he had to take that problem on himself. 
And so he was born of a woman under the law of sin and death. So he was born with a humanity subject to like passions as we are. Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. Now, how are you tempted? Are you tempted only like Adam and Eve from some external source? Is that the only way you're tempted? Or do you have internal temptations? Do we believe Hebrews 4.15 that Christ was tempted in every way just like us? Or do we believe he didn't experience internal temptation? Well, if you want another text with that, James 1 says, no one should say God tempts because God cannot be tempted. So notice Christ's divine nature. Could Christ experience temptation in his divine nature? No. No. So when Christ was tempted, what nature is being tempted? The human nature he took upon himself. So it says, no one should say God tempts because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. Have you ever experienced being tempted internally? Did Christ experience that pull? Can you give me an example? Gethsemane. Best, best example in Gethsemane. Did Christ experience powerful emotions in Gethsemane that if he followed them, which direction would he have gone? Laying his life down for us or using his power to save himself? If he'd have followed his feeling. Do you understand the root to our, our sick condition is this inherent, this pull, this thing we don't even try for, we don't have to think about, it's reflexive, it's automatic, that we always look out for number one. We're watching to keep self safe. Protect self. Watch out for self. And it infects all of our thinking. Christ took upon himself humanity that was subject to that type of temptation. And he looked at the portals of death that were approaching. And from his human perspective, he was willing to surrender his life eternally from where he was walking at that moment. And he was tempted not to do so. But every time the temptation came to to save self, he overcame that temptation by giving himself. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. And so we see these two antagonistic principles at war in the mind, in the human mind of Jesus Christ. We see this this power of, of Satan's government tempting him to act to save himself. We see the power of God's government, the power of love, uh, leading him to surrender himself. And, and, and these are the two principles at war. And in the human being, Christ Jesus, the, the principle of love vanquished, overcame, destroyed. And he lived out perfectly. And this is why, by the way, he had to die. If at any point along death's approach, Christ would have exercised his power to stop death from taking him, who would he have saved? Selfishness would have won. This is why he had to die. But once he died, selfishness in Christ was destroyed. Love was perfectly reproduced. And he was able to rise again because in Christ Jesus the law of love was perfectly lived out. And that is the basis of all life. Yes? Uh, I'm I'm having trouble with this. Good. Ask questions. I'm glad we have somebody to ask some questions. You said earlier, a long time ago, that that's inherently evil to want to take on, to want to protect self. I mean, maybe you didn't say that, but that was the way I interpreted it. I mean, so are you saying that Christ was inherently evil because he had... No, never. I've never said that. Mm -mm. I said he took upon himself a 
human condition, subject to like passions as we are, capable of experiencing temptation in the same way we do. Right, but you, but you kind of indicated that because of that, it was that was not a good thing. It was the only way. It, look at it metaphorically, if you want to use the medical model. We're all dying of HIV infection. Christ took upon himself a humanity uh, infected with HIV, but he had a father with a healthy immune system, so his immune system fought off the HIV. He took upon himself a condition subject to our, our, our condition. Our, our very nature he took upon himself, it says. And our nature is self-centered. So he took upon himself a nature subject to that, and we see the evidence for it that he did experience temptation to act in self-interest, did he not? Okay? But, but, but we have to put together the scripture. He was tempted in every way, just like we are yet without sin. Can you be tempted and sin not? Yes. So, so Christ was tempted like we are, but he never succumbed to it, not even in thought. And that's what's amazing. He didn't even in his mind think, boy, it sure would be nice to just smoke these, flame these guys right now. <laughs> he didn't even have that thought. But I'll restrain myself. I won't do it. But I sure would like it. It'd feel really good if I could just toast these guys right now when they were beating him and spitting on him. Never had that thought. His thought was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I love them so much. They're killing me. And they think, they think that by killing me, they're going to get some gain. But in reality, they're cutting themselves, themselves off from life and destroying their own life. That breaks my heart, Father. That was his attitude, even in thought. Yes? That's what's so cool about this whole thing. Because the incarnation that Jesus experienced, where he had a father nature and the mother nature in him is what he wants to do for us. So when we're born again, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit and then we have that God-like nature. It's not ours. Right. It, it comes from God. We have that God-like nature which says, now wait a minute. <laughs> you know, are you being selfish here? That's right. And it's a... That's what the that's what the new birth is. That's exactly right. God wants us to be the way that Jesus was, that union of human and divine which is strong enough to overcome. We become partakers of divine, divine nature, it says. Romans five five, he pours his love into our hearts. God is love. Exactly right. And so within each of us who are reborn, there is that same war going on that Christ won in our behalf once we're reborn. That we are battling between whether we're going to love others or whether we're going to continue to act in self-interest. And remember those who are ready to meet Christ when he comes? Revelation chapter 12. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. The need to protect self is gone. We're willing to give ourselves in love. And God has friends who has demonstrated that this healing can take place in sinful people. People who had previously practiced me first Moses, who killed the overseer, was willing to give his life after spending time with God to protect others. Was he not? Yes. Uh, Paul, uh, who stoned and imprisoned and beat the Christians, practicing that me-first principle, afterwards wrote in Corinthians, I'd gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might be saved. A transforming process. And that's the process he wants to happen in each one of us. And so Christ won that victory, creating and developing, as it says uh, in Hebrews 5.8, that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. That's, that's a quote from Scripture. It's not my words. Once he was made perfect, I thought he was born perfect. What does that mean, made perfect? 
He learned obedience by the things he suffered. It actually says that. Well, he learned obedience by the things he suffered, and once he was made perfect, that's actually the phrase right before it. In Hebrews 5, 5, 8, yes. And it says he grew in wisdom and stature. So what does this mean? That Christ tread out in his human mind, not his divine mind, his human mind, he took a hum- humanity upon himself. He tread out and developed a perfect character as God designed the human race to develop in Adam. It was, God, it was Adam's original plan for God, from God to develop that character in Eden. Yes? Does that imply that he made mistakes along the way, or what? Because you're saying that he learned it through obedience. He learned to be perfect. Does that mean that he had to have made some kind of mistake along the way? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Uh, in Eden, could Adam have learned loyalty to God without having rebelled against him? Yes. Could he have done that? Yes. Before the fall, could he have seen the temptation, and Eve too, and could they have said, no, I'm going to trust God, I'm not going to take the fruit, would they have learned something in that decision? Yeah. Yes. But there are mis- human mistakes that are not sin, and Jesus was a carpenter, and I thought about that a lot. If you've ever been around a carpenter, they cut boards wrong. And I, I, you know, they measure a little bit wrong. We're all human. There's a difference between making a mistake and sinning. I I would agree with that. I agree with that completely. There is a difference. Uh, When we get to heaven and we're all sinless, I'm looking forward to that day, and you decide, uh, you know, you're going to, you know, plant a garden, and after you plant it, it's grown a while, is it possible you might look and go, oh, you know what, that really doesn't belong there. I shouldn't put this, this tree over there. Is that possible? Does that mean you've sinned? No. No. But with God, I don't think those mistakes are made because he has all knowledge and can see the future and all that other stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. People would have thought that he disobeyed too because like with the temple, you know, him staying in the temple when he was 12 and his parents living, and wouldn't that be considered a mistake by some people? Actually, we we talked about that in this class sometime back. Other people might, like to the outsiders, it might appear that he was disobeying or something. Yeah, but it might appear that way. Not. Does that mean it was a mistake? Oh, no, 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 I don't think so. Yeah, no. yeah. But, so back to our point in Hebrews 5.8, once he learned, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation. Does that mean he wasn't the source of salvation until he completed his mission? Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. That's what the text implies. Does the text imply that? Once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation. So what it's saying is that Christ, of course, was the source prior to his incarnation, but he hadn't done what was necessary to fulfill those responsibilities to be able to save us. And yet, which was? Throughout his life, he said, you know, I am the way, I am the bread of life, I am the living spring. And so the metaphor that I think I like the best is the vine. He is the vine. <clears throat> that has in it that element that brings life, where the branches, they're grafted in. Christ developed this perfect law of love, lived out, and those who connect with him, it's poured into us. We become partakers of his nature. It's not our nature anymore. And then we can have that love in us that is not natural to us by birth on this planet anymore. Jesus said to the disciples, it's expedient for you that I leave, because if I don't leave, you know, If I don't leave, the comforter won't come. But when he comes, he's not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak only what he hears. Now, who do you think the comforter is listening to? Jesus. And so when you read comments and things about Jesus as pleading his blood in heaven, 
Have you ever heard those comments? And it says he's pleading his blood in heaven before the Father's throne. And a lot of people think that means he's pleading to the Father. It doesn't say that. Because they're all in this together. Romans chapter 8 tells us if God is for us, who can be against us. They're all in it together. Exactly. He's pleading to us because the Holy Spirit is taking what Christ is saying and making it known to us. It wasn't until Jesus died that we really understood what evil was. It was unmasked. That's true. Evil was unmasked. And, you know, this is as when we're children and as we grow older, Satan's temptations are attractive often at first. And and what Christ does is he reveals the truth about Satan's temptations that they don't bring happiness and fulfillment and pleasure and And one of the keys for me is understanding truly the law of love. The law of love is a principle upon which life is based. Does everyone understand that? Mm -hmm. Life operates on this principle. It would be like the law of respiration, the law of nutrition, the law of hydration. Okay, If you violate them, the consequence is death, not an imposed penalty. Same with the law of love. Life is designed by God to operate on this principle. Violations are result, resultant in death, not as an imposed penalty. And in fact, this world has been sustained by God's intercessions, his interventions, and his grace, holding at bay the full consequences of what the breaches in the law of love would have brought. But back to the nature of Christ. There is some who teach that Christ came with no access to any of his divine prerogatives at all. He divested himself of all divine prerogatives when he came and was like a human, like you and me, except in character. The only difference was in character. So on the cross, he was as helpless as the two thieves on the cross, no. Um, that's what some people suggest. Any thoughts about that? Then why would no. Satan have tempted him to turn rocks into bread if he had no... And that is the beautiful type of thinking because that looks at evidence. Okay, If he couldn't do it, then, then there's no temptation there. Okay, Christ had access if he chose to. He could have uh, tapped into his own divine prerogative at any time. So the temptations that he experienced were way beyond anything we ever experienced on multiple levels. Um, imagine somebody you love very, very closely. Think about your wife, your spouse, your, 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 uh, your children, and, and then you're told that you are never going to see them again. They're going to be taken from you. Versus you're told you never get to meet and spend time with Osama bin Laden. Now, which is harder? <laughs> which terrors at you more? Now, the reason I say this, don't laugh, Christ was being, being separated from his relationship with his father. That's a terrible temptation. It's a terrible grief. It's a terrible pain, is it not? But the wicked in the end, what's their attitude towards the Father? They run from him. Do they even like him? No. no, they don't even want to be around him. What Christ suffered is tremendously worse. Tremendously worse in every way. Monday's lesson. The last sentence of the first paragraph says, The reality of the union of the human and the divine in Christ is indispensable for the atonement. And the second paragraph asks why. And we've been discussing that why. Why did it have to happen? Because there is no other way that God's perfect law of love could have been put back into the human species without a human being doing it. It had to be lived out. Somebody had to put it there. Once it was no longer there, Christ came to do it, to heal it, to fix it. Does that confuse people? Okay. It was an example, right? Not just an example. And literal. Let's talk about this, okay? So what was accomplished at the cross? Two types of things. First, let's talk about demonstration. 
Christ came in his life, death, and resurrection, the whole thing, we saw about Christ, life, death, resurrection, the whole thing, came to reveal things that needed to be revealed. Part one. What things did he come to reveal? God's character. Okay, the character of God. What else? What love is like. When we say God's character, let's split that up. He came to reveal the Father's character. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. But did he also come to reveal his character? Philippians chapter 2, remember? Christ uh, did not think equality with the Father was something to be grasped, but humbled himself all the way to the cross, okay? So it was not only his Father's character was being revealed, but his own character was being revealed. Why was that important? Why was it necessary to reveal the Father's character first? Because lies have been told about the character. Because lies have been told about the character of God by Lucifer in heaven. Remember the, the text in Revelation, there was war in heaven? Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. The word war in Greek is polemo. We get the word politics from that. Okay, we just came through a big campaign. You saw what happens in a political war. Lots of things are said. Satan was saying, Lucifer was saying ugly things about God in heaven. Christ came to reveal the truth about God. Okay, we understand that, and that makes sense. Okay, he lied about God, the truth about God had to be revealed. Well, why did he have to reveal the truth about his own character? If you were an angel in heaven... Perfect, no carnal nature. What do you think Lucifer could have done to get you to rebel against God? What could he have said? Hey, let's chip up the streets of gold and sell it on the black market up here. <laughs> I mean, the things that we think of sin, a little heavenly cocaine ring, gets, get it going up here. I mean, if you, th- I'm, uh, you think about it. All the stuff we think about as sin, would, would it have had any impact on the angels at all? No. So what do you think he could have said to you? Yes. He had to be like them. Like Jesus had to be like us so that we could identify with him. Because the Father's so far off, just like the angels were so far off from the Father, Jesus came as an angel to them. He came to us as human. So to reveal himself, he was revealing his human side. Okay, I like what you're saying. So what she's saying is God is infinite. In 1 Timothy 6.16 it says he lives in unapproachable light. Even the angels couldn't really comprehend God. God had to come to the angelic level to communicate with them. So first, let's be clear. Jesus is fully divine, fully God, preexistent, um, doesn't have a beginning, doesn't have an ending. Okay, So we're not going to talk about some lesser demigod. Okay, Jesus is fully God. And as fully God, he became human and manifested himself in human nature at the Incarnation. And did he do such a good job as a human, at being human, that people, some people failed to see that he was God? Yes. yes. Well, the idea here is suggested that he came prior to that, he manifested himself to the angels in the form of an angel. Could he have been such a good angel that some of the angels failed to see he was God? Yes. yes. And this is where I think Lucifer made his allegations. He made his allegations that, that there's no difference between me and Christ. About Jesus appearing like an angel. Exodus chapter 3, 1 through 3, uh, Acts chapter 7, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, if you read in Exodus chapter 3, 1 through 3, Moses is talking to God at the bush. It says, in the, right in the, in the passage, it says, the angel of the Lord spoke to Moses from the bush. God spoke to Moses from the bush. Paul tells us in Corinthians that the God that led children of Israel out of Egypt was Jesus. They drank from the rock that is Jesus Christ. That rock was Christ. Okay? So the God of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. God that spoke to G- in the bush was Jesus. And it says in the text that the angel of the Lord spoke to him from there. Um, the, the angel of the Lord, his voice is heard, the voice of the archangel is heard at the second coming, who raised the dead. Well, who is it that has the keys 
to Hades and the grave? Christ. Christ. I mean, there's lots more evidence for this. Stephen affirms what, what, Paul, what uh, Moses wrote in Exodus when he, at his speech in Acts 7, says the same thing about the angel of the Lord uh, being God, speaking in the, in the bush. So we have evidence for this. And so the point being is, allegations were made that God couldn't be trusted. Why? Because God took Christ into councils that he didn't take Lucifer into. And Lucifer looked over and said, God is arbitrary and he's unfair and he keeps angels down. He picks some, he's got favorites. He picks some for some things and he picks these on, on a whim without any reason. And so the allegations against God were, were based on attacks against Christ, as I understand it. And so Christ had to come. And this is why, by the way, if you ever ask the question, why was it that Jesus was the member of the Godhead through which all things were created? You understand the Father, Son, the Father and the Spirit have the power to create. But the Bible says Jesus was the one through which all things were created. Doesn't it say that? Why? Because the allegations from Lucifer were against particularly the member of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus had to give evidence that he and a created being, Lucifer, are different. Lucifer can't create. Jesus can't. He's the creator. And so this was all about evidence. And then the allegation came, well, now we have someone to lord over us, a master. We don't have freedom anymore. We've got to an answer to this being here, this angelic being. It's not really an angel. It's, it's fully God. Uh, but, but this allegation of, of lording over came. And so Christ, and you get the Philippians text, showed that he was not a being that would lord over, but would humble himself all the way to the cross. And then in John chapter 13, it says, when, when all power had been given to Christ, he had all power now. What did he do? Took off his outer garments and washed the feet of the He washed the feet, even of his betrayer. How does God use power? To lord over and dominate? Or to serve in love other people? This was all being revealed too. So we have, we, we have God's character revealed, Christ's character revealed. We have the nature of sin, which was mentioned earlier. Why did Christ die on the cross? Do we see the Father laying a hand on his son at the cross? No. No. We see that the wages of sin is death, that sin severs us from the circle of life, that sin severs us from the connection with God, and that results in death. Um, we see how God treats the wicked. How did God treat his son at the cross? He gave him up. He let him go. What will God do to the wicked in the end? Give him up. Let him go. Let him go. That's what he does. Strange act. And if you want to see text for that, Romans chapter 1, starting verse 18, all the way through verse 31, you'll see it verse 18, wrath of God is being revealed, in verse 24, 26, 28. What did God do? He gave them up. He let them go. Uh, had to expose Satan for a liar and the fraud that he was. Had to show God's use of power. Uh, on the cross... Christ had all power, been already given to him. John 13 tells us that. But notice that he never used his power to restrict human freedom. He would rather let his creatures kill him than use his power to stop his intelligent creatures. Isn't that incredible? Can you trust a God? Can you trust a God with power who wields it like that? You see? This this was essential. Uh, no defect in God's design of humanity. You see, God designed human, humans wrong. That's why they sinned and rebelled. No. Christ, in his human victory, proved there was no design flaw here. Humans, in Adam, in the beginning, were, were capable of being loyal and faithful to God and developing perfect, loving character. Christ proved it. So there was no, no, no design flaw.
And of course, the perfection of God's law of love is the basis of life and happiness. All this was revelatory. All this was demonstrative. All this was demonstration of, of, of things. But that's part one of what Christ had to do. Part two was accomplishments or actual achievements in addition to revelation. What did Christ actually achieve or accomplish in addition to revealing these things we talked about? Hebrews 2.14 he, destroyed, he accomplished the destruction of Satan. He took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. He accomplished Satan's demise and destruction. Uh, the destruction of death. And this is powerful. Uh, 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. That through his death he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. So he came to destroy the one who holds the power of death. He came to destroy death itself. This is not just revelation, this was accomplishment. He came to develop a perfect character. We've talked about that, Hebrews 5.8. And ultimately, the curing of the sick, sinful condition. The restoring, the fixing, putting humankind back where God originally designed them to be through his life journey. Thus, these are all accomplishments, achievements, not just revelations. Do you see that? Anything else? Yes. Does that mean that God could not impart to us, to humankind, the divine nature without the death of Christ? That means that human beings couldn't develop a perfect character without the death of Christ. Explain that more, if you could. Adam, prior to his fall, was capable in the abilities he was created with by God to live a perfect and holy life and develop a perfect character. He was capable of doing that. After the fall, the human condition, the human species, was so warped that we could not develop a perfect character in harmony with the love of, law of love anymore. We were so self-centered, so, so bent on, on, on survival of the fittest, that our actions would, would only, apart from God, develop a selfish, exploitive, evil character. We couldn't do it. Christ came to do that which we couldn't do in, in humanity. That's the key. As in a human brain with a human mind, that he, he did what we couldn't do. I guess me and several people that I've talked with have a hard time understanding how what he did is applied to us. Is it some kind of physical application? Is it by beholding we become changed? How is it applied to us so that we can partake in it? I think that's a great question. I don't think we fully understand that. Part of what Paul talks about in, um, I think it's Ephesians, but he talks about the mystery of God, Christ in you. In Colossians 1. It's Colossians. It's the mystery. It's also in Ephesians. It's in every epistle. Yeah. But the, the mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay? There is a certain aspect that our minds right now can't fully comprehend. But let me ask you this question. Do you have to understand how an antibiotic was developed in order to benefit from taking it? Do you have to understand how antibiotic works? in order to benefit from taking mm -hmm. it. Do you have to trust the doctor and follow his prescriptions? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay? So I think what Christ did is analogous to our antibiotic, heals and fixes our sick condition. How it ultimately fully works, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to be able to explain that fully. In fact, um, I think this will be the science that we study through all eternity, how the atonement of Christ heals and fixes us and restores well, all things. Talk about how we receive the mind of Christ. Okay. Um, Ultimately, how we receive the mind of Christ and how we receive what Christ has done for us is through the trust relationship. We see the evidence that he has given us 
in his own character, of his own trustworthiness, and the trustworthiness of the Father. And in trust, we open the heart to him. The truth, you'll know the truth, the truth about God sets us free from the lies about God. And as we come to know God, this is life eternal, they might know you, the only true God of Jesus Christ and now sent. So as we come to know him, we open the heart to him, and then he pours out his Holy Spirit, which is himself, law of love, and he recreates and regenerates us, the work of the Spirit in our hearts, and we experience a power that is not of our own to love others. We come to care about other people. We're, we're not fearful and afraid anymore. We're not looking out for number one anymore. We begin to then choose with this new power, this new motive, this new desire to live lives of love rather than uh, lives of self-centeredness. Okay? And it's just the opposite of how sin and selfishness got in. How did selfishness get in? And you've heard me, heard me tell this before, but spouses in here, you're in a loving, healthy, trustworthy marriage, and somebody comes to you and lies to you. Your own mother, your own father, brother, sister, somebody close to you lies to you and tells you your, your spouse is having an affair. Now, it's not true, but if you believe the lie, if you believe that your spouse is having the affair, does something inside of you change? Yeah. Notice the law of love, the circle of love and trust gets broken. And so lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust then, see, I, I believe my spouse is having an affair. The circle of love and trust is broken. Now I'm afraid. I'm afraid of, they might bring me a disease. I'm afraid they're going to exploit me, take advantage of me. I, I can't trust them to look out for me and keep me safe. I've got to watch out for myself. So lies believe break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. Fear and selfishness result in acts of sin, looking out for number one, sinfulness. So the plan of salvation starts where the problem began. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth destroys lies, restores us back to trust. We trust God, we open the heart, invite him in. The Spirit's poured out, and the Spirit fills our hearts with love for others and takes away our fear because now we're trusting God. And in trust and love, we go out and live acts and lives of love, giving and serving others rather than looking out for, number one, a transformed life. Does that partly answer your question anyway? Yeah. Okay. In page 93 of the quarterly, it says, Ask your class to think of everyday things that they cannot explain and that they accept by faith. How does this make them feel? And uh, we're, we're going to have time to spend a lot of time on everything, every, everyday things you, you accept by faith. But the, the idea that things you can't explain. If you can explain something, does that mean you lose faith? No. If you can explain how, how a combustion engine works, does that mean you don't have faith to when you put the key in, that it's going to start. There is a type of faith that is not faith at all, but presumption. And this presumption is a, quote, faith for which we cannot give explanation. A faith which has no evidence. A faith that says, just believe. And I'm including an article in the notes for this week that I got off of uh, the Internet, Friday, October 3, 2008, called Foreclosures. Did God want you to get that mortgage? <laughs> and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, I'll just read you a little bit of it. Has the so-called prosperity gospel turned its followers into some of the most willing participants and hence victims of the current financial crisis? That's what a scholar of the fast-growing brand of Pentecostal Christianity believes. While researching a book on black televangelism, says Jonathan Walton, a religious professor at the University of California, Riverside, he realized that the prosperity's central promise that God would make a way for poor people to enjoy the better things of life, had developed an additional toxic expression during the subprime boom. Walton says that this encouraged congregants 
who got dicey mortgages to believe God caused the bank to ignore my credit score and bless me with my first house. Amen. The results, he said, were disastrous because they pretty much turned parishioners into pray for greedy brokers. You see, they had faith. I got that loan, even though I got a terrible credit score and don't make any money. You see, God must have been opening the door. I have faith. And this happened by the thousands and hundreds of thousands across the country. It's part of the, part of the problem. Just thought, what do you think about that kind of faith? A faith that ignores evidence, ignores the fact that, that I only make X amount of dollars, ignores the fact that mortgage payment is, is this price, but it can balloon up at any time, ignores those facts and evidences, but has faith. What do you think about a, a faith like that? It's not presumption. It's idiocy. It's not presumption. But see, many Christians are taught that we have science and evidence over here, we have faith over here, and science and faith. You, we can't explain our faith by science. We shouldn't try to and shouldn't use evidence in our faith. Well, who is the author of science? God. God? Okay, properly understood, the Bible and science always harmonize. Always. We should never shut the mind down to evidence and truth. The truth sets free. The truth heals. Uh, God wants us to use our reasoning capacities to understand as fully as possible so that we can develop that character of Christ within us through his power so that we get what the fruits of the Spirit, the last fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. Self-control, self-governance, that we are beings who can think through problems like God would think through problems with his methods, his principles, his values, what's important to him, and come to a conclusion that he would come to. Like you see, let me, let me ask you this, guys. If you're, you're a teacher, as t- and probably some other teachers in the room, imagine you're a math teacher, and you're trying to teach your, your students math problems. Is your goal to simply hand them the answers to each problem so they can just parrot back the right answer, or is your goal to get them to think in ways that they can then figure out problems and get the right answer all the time? Okay, God doesn't simply want us to be able to parrot back the right answer that he told us. He wants to heal our minds so that we can think through the problem and come up with the right answer constantly, always, because that's what we value, that's what we believe, that's what we know is true as well. Isn't that what he did in his lifetime? I mean, he kept asking questions to the Pharisees, to the common people, trying to get them to think in a different way than they had been taught about all those rules and regulations. Yeah, I think so. Boy, there are several big points I wanted to make, so I'm going to have to really fly now. we got like four minutes left. Tuesday's lesson talks about the baptism of John and about how Jesus was baptized in our behalf. Next here it says, The significance of Christ's baptism cannot be overemphasized. First, um, by requesting baptism, Jesus was identifying himself with sinners. He who was not in need of baptism requested it, not for himself, but for us, for our benefit. And by doing so, he left an example for all who will follow him. But his baptism is more than an example. It made possible for us to be joined to him through our baptism, so forth. I just want to talk about that really quick. John's baptism was a baptism of? Repentance. 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 What is repentance? Turning away, turning around, turning back, turning away from. Jesus came as the second Adam to do what? To reverse what Adam had done. To turn the human race around. Did he not? To turn the human race off the path of sin and death onto the path of eternal life. Isn't that what Christ came to do? Was the baptism then part of Jesus declaring his mission as the second Adam to die a death which would destroy death, 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, and rise again, thus turning the human race around from that path of death and putting it back in harmony with God and eternal life? I think that's what that baptism was saying. I'm here 
as the second Adam, and I'm, this is the baptism of repentance, the baptism of turnarounds. And I'm turning the human race around. It's no longer on a path of death. Through me, it's on the path of life. Well, how did he do this? How did he turn the race around? Was it just symbolic? He turned it around symbolically? Did he turn it around legally? Or did he literally, actually, fix, in his own human walk, the damage that sin had caused? He won the victory, a literal accomplishment. The memory verse at the top of Thursday's lesson says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And we don't have time to spend a lot of time on this. We're just about out. But I want to hit this point as well. Why did he spend so much time healing? Because it is the best way to demonstrate the plan of salvation, which is the plan of healing, the plan of restoration from sickness, the plan of, of regeneration. Notice that Jesus did not go around to the court systems and legally defend people and criminals in court getting them off. He didn't do that. He could have. He could have been the best lawyer ever. We don't need a lawyer in heaven. We need a savior which means a healer, a restorer, a regenerator. And he went around healing because the plan of salvation is the plan of healing. That's why he spent his time there. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you sent your Son to do that which we could not do, to destroy him who holds the power of death, to destroy death itself by living perfectly out the law of love, total harmony with the principle on which all life is based. And Lord, you've revealed the truth that wins us to trust, and we open our hearts and minds to you now in trust, and we ask that you'll pour your Spirit out, and that the Spirit will take all that Christ has achieved, the, the perfect character of love, put it in our hearts and minds, that we will love you and love others, that our fear of what happens to us will be taken away, that we have confidence knowing that you are looking out for us, and that we don't have to look out for ourselves. Uh, we just need to follow and apply your methods to our lives consistently, reliably, predictably, trusting you with the outcomes. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Mm -hmm.